Enough of that. Those little subliminal messages there. Oh, yes, enough of that. All those little messages creeping under the radar. Yes, that was The Smiths and the track called Rubber Ring. And that was from the album The World Won't Listen. I'm David Eastall, and this is The C86 Show. Hello and welcome. It's showtime. Yes, 
I'm back on the air. And this week we have another very special guest because it's the turn of the Copto twins. I caught up with band member Simon Raymond, one third of that amazing combo that we grew to love during the 80s and the 90s and elsewhere. But because we're um, obviously very excited to catch up with such an influential band and probably the soundtrack of my life, your life, and let's face it, everyone's life during those rocky years during that Thatcher's Britain period. I thought, well, we'll be bringing you the um, five parts of the interview throughout the show. We'll be scattering it far and wide, as well as lots of quality music and quality chat. So we're going to cut right to the chase and play your favourite, my favourite. This is Heaven or Las Vegas.
There you have it. That is uh, the Talking Heads. Just Talking Heads. The track called Dream Operator. And that was from the album, he says, looking down at his notes. I had this all worked out, didn't I? Yes, true stories, as if it could have been anything else. And uh, before that, we had the Copto Twins, who are this week's special guests. And that was a track called Heaven or Las Vegas. And that was from the album, which was also titled Heaven or Las Vegas. And the reason for having, um, yes, the special guests being the Copto Twins was I caught up with one third of the band, just one third, um, Simon Raymond uh, a few weeks ago or possibly months ago to find out more about what life was like in that amazing um, indie, I don't know if you could call them indie, but um, well, I suppose they were on the independent label 4AD at the time to find out about their sort of musical journey and their ups and ups and slight downs and all those tricky bits in between. So I'll be bringing that interview very soon because I've got quite a bit of it. So what I'm going to do is play a track probably from Victoria Land and then play the first part of the interview, which I do think you're going to enjoy. Anyway, this is Fluffy Tufts.
There you have it. That is the um, unmistakable sound of the Copto Twins, and that was a track called Fluffy Tufts, and that was from their 1986 album, Victoria Land. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show on Future Radio 107.8 FM. And if you'd like to contact me, we always love your messages. You can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86 show and I'll be there but uh, always happy to receive your messages and as always and I'm sure most of you know by now I always like to get a special guest and this week it is the turn of the Copto Twins because I caught up with Simon Raymond from the band and I'll be playing you the first part of that interview right now where I ask him about um, how they got it all together so um, all I want you to do sit back just turn up your stereos and pay attention because I'll be testing you at the end of this interview. The Cocteau started in in, uh, in Grangemouth, in uh, a town in between uh, Edinburgh and Glasgow, early 80s. Um, Liz and his mate Will, who was the original bass player, um, saw uh, Elizabeth dancing uh, at a at a at a gig, I think it was, or a disco or something, and thought, oh well, she she'd be good. Let's get her in, and um, they started a band together like like that right. that that way. And um, you know, the, the te- it's like a very industrial part of, of Scotland. Um, there's a big, huge, big BP oil refinery in Grangemouth, and it's um, it's a place a lot of people want to get out of. You know. Yes. And I, I met the band first first off when I was working at um, Beggar's Banquet Record Shop in, uh, in around about eighty two, I think it was. Right. Maybe eighty one, something like that. I was in a band on Situation Two, which is a Little subsidiary of of beggars. Yes, uh, least... upstairs from the record shop was was Four AD Beggars and and this other little label that I was part of. And, um, that's how I met them. They came down to London a lot. You know, we became friends. I was in a band. They were in a band, and then they moved down. And Will, the original bass player, um, didn't really want to move. He wanted to stay up in in Scotland for you know family reasons or whatever. And um, after a wee while, they uh, they asked me to join, and um, I didn't really have a uh, even hesitation th- thinking about it. Just jumped in there, you know. Yeah, well, because Situation Two, which was part of Beggars, it was, it was quite a gothy kind of post-punk gothy kind of label, wasn't it? It was a bit of that. There was um, uh, there was also Divine was signed to Situation Two, um, and the Associates. Right. Um, who were definitely not gothy. No. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were sort of more like kind of avant garde pop really. Yeah. Um extraordinary band. Probably, you know, one of my favourite singers of all time, Billy McKenzie. So yeah, it was a great time, you know, like uh, working in that record shop was you know, looking back on it now, it it was the start of everything that I'm doing now. You, you know, like what, meeting all the people that I met, and 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 now I'm there. Here I am, like God Almighty knows how many years later. Yes. But with my own tiny little record shop here down in Brighton, and it's um, it feels a nice full circle. Excellent. So when you started sort of jamming with the um, with Liz and Robin, how did it start to develop? Because obviously, you know, the Copto Twins had quite a distinctive sound, and there wasn't many bands that probably sounded like that before you appeared. Well, it was really easy. I mean, I know that sounds trite, but it's like we we before I even knew that they wanted to work with me. I'd um, I was working part time on a weekend at this little eight track studio up in Camden, and I knew the owner was going to be away one weekend. And when Robin and Liz were down for, for a visit, I said, "Hey, you know, you, you you can use the studio this weekend because I can let you in and you can just do what you want to do." And I took them up there and. Um, 
they sort of stared at me like, you know, well, what do you, what do you want to do? And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> and they said, well, did you know, I thought you wanted to write some songs. And I was like, that wasn't in the plan, but, you know, well, well let's do it. So uh, we just kind of wrote this tune. Liz went out to get some chips, and me and Robin jammed for 10 minutes, and we had this tune going. And um, when she came back, she was like, oh, my God, that's the best thing I've ever heard. We carried on recording it that day. And that version that we recorded, the first song we ever wrote together, is a track called Millie Millinery, which was um, on, uh, I can't remember what, what it was on, it was on uh, uh, the Pink Opaque, I think it was, which is a, right. a compilation album that we released in the US only, um, very early days. And yeah, that was the first song we wrote. And I think because it was so natural and, and, and the way we wrote was quite simple, uh, it did, there was there was no weirdness, you know, <laughs> awkwardness that sometimes you have when you kind of work with new people. Yes. Um, maybe that they they took that as a, a sign that you know I was a good plus person to work with. Yeah. And it was really pretty much like that all the way through. I mean, it was not an easy band to be in. I won't kid you. You know, there was a lot of you know emotional and and personal and drug related issues that dominated our uh, career. But certainly the recording part, yeah. and, um, and there was always there was always the pleasurable part, which is a good thing, and that's the thing that we, the listener, loved so much. Anyway, that's the first part of my interview with Simon Raymond from the Copto Twins. I'll be bringing you the next four parts very soon. But to keep the show on the road and keep the party rocking, I thought we should play. Um, well, this is from the album Four Calendar Cafe, and this is the opening track. Know who you are at every age. <laughs>
Once again, pop perfection. There you go. That was the Copto Twins and track taken from the album Four Calendar Cafe. Know who you are at every age. Yes, this is David Eastall, the C86 Show. And as you gather, it is the Copto Twins special because I caught up with Simon Raymond. Anyway, this is the second part of my interview where we just uh, we ask him about how the band will get in the band together and um, the creative process. Take it away, Simon. Oh, yeah, Elizabeth is, is, is a complete one-off. She's a, a miracle worker. Um, sings from places that people don't tend to go to. You know, she sings from right deep down inside and very emotional, very uh, instinctive. Um, An incredible gift and and a small tragedy, really, to the world that she's not more prolific than she is. But, um, yeah, incredible to work with. I mean, it really opened my eyes. And I have to say, I've been lucky enough to work and produce some, some incredible singers over the years. But... You know, Liz is right up there at the very, very top. And the way we worked was we pretty much had an album, 10 instrumentals, all finished, kind of arranged, produced, almost ready to go. And then Liz would come in and just sort of go through them one by one and and, and put vocals on and just sort of improvise. Uh, an amazing ability to to kind of improvise the most sort of acrobatic kind of melodies and then five seconds later be able to harmonize with it or, you know, do it exactly the same again. You know, very, very unusual. Yes. Um, because it, it was always kind of made up as she went along. Uh, she'd have a load of lyrics, but she wouldn't have, um, well, not, not a load, a few <laughs> lyrics. And, um, you know, she would then... Uh, just go in the studio and just kind of jam it a bit like we did with the music because we mm. didn't have any songs written we always used you to go in and kind of pretty much turn the tape machine on and just see what came out yes and, and if not much came out then we, then we just go bowling or something you know like <laughs> just go home and, and come back when we were feeling more up to it <laughs> yes because it was um i mean looking back at the time you know we all took it slightly for granted but i did notice that you know with you and also the smiths you seem to be bringing out an album a year and it was a yeah. bit like it was a bit like that in the sixties with the Beatles, Stones, and various other bands. But now, but um, but obviously, and which is incredible to be able to do that plus tour and have the inspiration. But obviously, you know that period from Garlands to right through to your sort of uh, Bluebell Null was was an incredible period of just kind of bringing out albums all the time. Yeah, you know what? I mean, I think people these days seem sort of like quite averse to to doing that. Like that, you know, this big build up has to be done and. Obviously, the the, the 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 vinyl production issues, you know, everything takes like four to five months from from when you deliver the master these days to, to actually get in a record in the shop. It, it, it prohibits that that it, it, spontaneity in a way, and I, I miss it a lot. I think bands, certainly young bands, I know it's things as you get older, life sort of starts to get in the way, and yes. um, you know, recording times just sort of. Do get elongated and, and, and time between records gets longer. But um, when you're younger, you know you you should be writing constantly and having great new ideas. And uh, I loved the fact that we had all these EPs coming out in between records. So yes. as you say, an album out pretty much every year or so in the beginning, and then even in, even in between those records, a couple of four track EPs. You know, with with, with with no songs that would be on albums, yes, know, stuff like that. I miss those days, to be honest. I really, really do. 
Yeah. Uh, I don't see there's any reason why why bands sh- shouldn't just release a ton of tracks in their twenties. You know, yes. they've got nothing else to do. Well, I suppose when you know we started looking again at David Bowie's back catalogue, thinking and realising what he'd done in the seventies, we we're thinking, oh my god! Apart from relocating in various different countries, cities, you know, he did all these albums. So again, it, you know, it made a lot of new bands who take four years look quite pedestrian, really. Well, we'll look at Talking Heads. You know, Talking Heads released. Four albums in 77, 78, 79 and 80. Four of the best albums ever made. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, and I think that's, 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 that's all you need to say, really. Just cite, cite Talking Heads as, 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 uh, as an example to young band. Just say, well, look, there, there you are. Four yeah. classic records in the space of four years. I think if you said that to any young people, person, they'd probably look at you and be completely baffled and say, who's the Talking Heads? Talking Heads? I'm sure they know the Smiths, but um, there are quite a few bands that uh, young people don't know. But anyway, we're not trying to be patronising. No way, not on this show. Anyway, but uh, that's why I played Dream Operator at the beginning of the programme. Anyway, this is David Esau. This is the C86 show, bringing you the finest in indie pop. And like I said, I've still got three more parts of that interview with Simon from the Coplo Twins. But because we're feeling very excited and we're loving the ethereal soundscapes that are being created, we thought we should stick with the band. This is Sugar Hiccup.
again. Perfect. Yes, that is the Copter Twins and the track called Sugar Hiccup. This is David Esau, the C86 show, and this is the third part of the interview with Simon Raymond, where we talk about the longevity of the band. Because I always have this thing that it's a sort of five-year period, but um, in this case, it's not quite true. Yeah, I mean, listen, we, we were uh, obsessed with, with making music. Um, there was no doubt about that. We, we, it was our way of communicating with ourselves and with our world. I think we were quite private, well, very private people. Um, we didn't really let other people in that well. Um, there were obviously issues that came to light as we got older and a bit more, well, I wouldn't say wiser, <laughs> just older, um, uh, that that caused, you know, quite big earthquakes in the band. Um, and it, it became a battle to sort of keep it together. But in the early days, I think we were just so in love with, the, you know, playing shows out. I know, I know that we weren't, we weren't ever really great live, I didn't think. Yeah. But um, we loved playing shows. We loved touring and especially loved, you know, being in the studio. And that, that was our way of communicating because I have to say we were appalling at communicating with our labels, with the press and with each other. Um, and the music was really our our our, our way of, of combating our inarticulacy. Yes. And did you? I mean, did that ever change? Did it? Was it always quite obvious that things were just never going to be that close? It because... did change right at the end. But but what happened was, of course, you know, education and uh, you know therapy of sorts kicked in in the in the last few years um, when things had sort of fallen up completely apart. And the, the, those tools that we had to uh, kind of help us uh, deal with the, the, the mess certainly sort of allowed us the opportunity to kind of understand what had gone on before and maybe how to deal with, with the future a little bit better. Um, but I think at that point, the, the, the rifts were sort of so enormous. And certainly from Elizabeth's point of view, once she got the knowledge of of, of why things had gone wrong and... and, and, and um, to the degree they'd gone wrong and how she needed to deal with her life going forward, being in the band wasn't really t- tenable. You know, it wasn't really possible. Yes. Because I suppose... I totally, I totally get that. Do you know what I mean? I, whilst it was a shock and I was a bit at a loose end to know what to do with, with her leaving, um, you know, looking back on it, it was absolutely the right thing to do. It was kind of a miracle they did, the band didn't break up when they broke up, which is you know, several years before that. Yes. Well, oh, because actually, because I, I don't know the personal details, but was Robin and Elizabeth then a couple then? Yeah, they were a couple uh, for, for all the time, uh, for the whole time in the band. Uh, well, uh, until they broke up when, uh, just after having Las Vegas. Right. Uh, but they'd already had a child. They had a child just before having Las Vegas, uh, as, I, as, I, as, I, as I did. Um, and... You know that that obviously you know having a having a baby and stuff like that and being in a band with, and having all these drug problems you know it was like a oh, really terrible mess <laughs> that, that that took some took some dealing with you know and eventually we kind of all got sorted out but as I say you know once we kind of got the tools of of, yes. of how to deal with it all it probably wasn't a good thing to be spending all that time still together trying to make this band work because it, it was just so broken by that point. Yes. Oh dear, it does sound rather um, 
difficult. But anyway, I've still got two more parts of that interview to go. This is David Eastall, the C86 show with my Copto twin special. And um, we always loved lots of the stuff that was coming out on the 4AD label, including um, this little classic. This is This Mortal Coil and the track called Another Day, Another Day. And there you go. That's another day, and that um, that was this mortal coil, and from their 1984 album title, it'll end in tears. I know we had such a cheery time during the 80s. Anyway, this is David Eastall and the C86 show, and this is the fourth part of my interview with Simon, where we talk about um, it was that sort of subject about how the members of the band get on with each other when it all goes slightly wrong, and also sort of the amount of history between them. And this is it. Yeah. yeah, because it gives some credence to, you know, to the memory and to the history of the band. And I suppose it helps when you listen to music, you know, knowing and not, not spending a whole time thinking, did they actually like each other? <laughs> you know, it's like, were they in the studio, like, hating each other? <laughs> you know, and for sure, we weren't. We, we all got on great. 
but it's just you know um, well 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 no that that's not strictly true. I mean I, I I got on great with with both of them up to a point, but you know when things started sort of taking over our lives, um, it became very painful for all of us. Yeah. And, um, it, 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 you know, it, it couldn't really continue. But you know, I'm, I'm glad to say that I have a, a very healthy relationship with with Elizabeth. See her, you know, on occasions. Just recently, a couple of times at, uh, John, at the John Grant shows and the Royal Albert Hall, Scott Walker show. I saw her, and it was it was always wonderful to see Elizabeth. She's an adorable human being. So, you know, um, I don't see us ever uh, reforming. That that's a ship that sailed already. Yes. Um, and I don't think any of us want want to go back there. You, you know, not not because I don't think we could ever do any good music. There, there's no doubt when you put the three of us in a room together, some some something good usually occurs. Um, so, so there, you know, that that's it's nothing to do with that. It's just to do with like living life and being happy. Yes. <laughs> and um, you, you know, like some of the things that that. Uh, that you need to protect yourself from uh, why, why would you step back into that you know yeah absolutely and I mean you know obviously with decades of experience now what would what would you sort of say to your kind of 18 year old self <laughs> I think you've just got to live it you know you've got to make the mistakes because the mistakes are, are, are really such a huge part of uh, of life and in fact in many ways looking back they're the, they're the best bits yes you, you know because it's you, you know, you need sometimes you need to have a bit of a jolt or a bit of a a, a, a car crash to kind of learn how to drive better. Um, and I think I don't look back at that time and think, oh gosh, you know, I kind of wish we hadn't done that. I'm kind of glad we did all the things we did. Terrible though some of them were. <laughs> you know, I, I feel kind of like I've lived a good life. <laughs> yes. Um, and have got some decent experiences. And and I think doing what I do now, running a record label and, and helping, you know, bands uh, uh, who were at the same stage as we were when we were 18, you know, you don't really know what the hell is going on and you don't know anything about anything. I, I, I think it's it's a useful life to have lived uh, during the, the period of music we were making to be able to pass on, if it's ever required, some of that experience and that information to, to help maybe maybe m- help people maybe m- may not make the same mistakes we make. <laughs> I suppose it's almost impossible. You probably have to have that attitude when you're 18 to just kind of slight arrogant and yes and confident and all that, just to keep yes, it going. Yes, of course I come across people like that still. And I d- it doesn't bother me. You know, I, I, I'm glad. I, I wish more people had a, had a bit of that because, you know, everything's so safe and middle class sometimes in the music business. And it's, um, you know, I think it's good that, uh, you know, we were, we were really not particularly nice to people. We were sort of just stuck in our own little world. We didn't, like, welcome outsiders. Um, we treated people, you know, not well. You know, <laughs> we got thrown out of the BBC on several occasions, and 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 if you look at the, at the output of Cocteau and stuff on the BBC, it sort of stops at a certain point. Yeah, sure. In like the early eighties, the mid eighties, and then doesn't, doesn't ever sort of pick up again. We never did anything at the BBC between about eighty three, eighty four, and like ninety four. Yes. You know, when some of the people had gone and. and <laughs> <laughs> not remembered that we were a total pain in the ass to work with. Yeah. Um, but I don't regret it. You know, I think you, we, we, we've learned a lot of lessons by doing by doing this stuff, and uh, you know, it's just the way we were. 
and we wouldn't have wanted it any other way. Yes, that was the fourth part of my interview with Simon Raymond from the Copter Twins. This is David Esau, the C86 Show. And uh, just in case, or just in case you want to contact me, you can via Twitter or Facebook. Just go to at C86 Show. And um, I don't do one of those strange things like like me. But anyway, we've got one more part of that interview to play before the end of the show. But uh, a bit more music. This is Peppermint Pig. There you have it, that's um, a very early single or EP from the Cocteau Twins' Peppermint Pig, and that came out in 1983. Now, my last part of the interview with Simon is quite brief, and we talk about the look and the image 
of the band, as well as the sound, obviously. I think we've covered the sound anyway. Not consciously, um, no. I mean, we were sort of, as I said, you know, we were in our own little world, and I think, you know, I don't think we were quite sort of aware of, you know, the style of something um, like Factory, you know, other than just thinking it was great and we're all part of the same sort of thing, same scene, you know, I was going to see, you know, Joy Division and the Slits and all the brilliant post-punk bands as they were happening in London. But, I, you know, I, I, it was part of the culture, it was part of our history, but I don't remember sort of thinking, you know, oh my gosh, Peter Saville, you know, yes. <laughs> great designer. I know that now, <laughs> and I look back on it and think, my God, that stuff's incredible, but I never really kind of thought of appreciated it at the time because we were just too busy yeah. doing our own thing. And, uh, and that's the fascinating thing about about that age is that you just do have blinkers on to the point where, you know, you, you, you're not really so aware. I don't know if kids do so much these days. People are a lot more aware about about everything, a lot younger than, than I was. Mm. I was just like, you know, making music, that's what we do. We just go in and we do it, and we don't really listen to other music. Uh, as soon as we're in a band, we just don't listen to other music so much because we don't want to sound end up sounding like anyone else. And that was really conscious um, thought process when yes. we were making our records. Don't let's go listen to other bands. Let's just do our own thing. And maybe that is why our stuff does stick out a little bit. Yes. It does sound a bit different. Well, it's interesting because actually every band I've listened to, I did sort of slightly say, you know, what, did you feel a bit of part of a scene? You know, because there was obviously the cassette, the C86, and everyone says no. And I, and I think in a way, you know, from Big Flame to Stump to Bogshed to the Copto Twins, you know, it's like, well, actually, you're all slightly on an independent label. And, and we, we came across it all via the John Peel show. And, and Correct. Got, you and know. That's it. And, and it was, you know, looking at it from the outside in, it looks like there was a scene. You always <laughs> used to say to me, oh, you know, this mortal coil, how amazing, you know, working with all the deck and dance people and the Wolfgang Press people and all the four. It must have been such a big, happy family. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I mean, I did. I worked on the first two albums a lot. I did a lot of work on it. I don't barely remember seeing anybody. <laughs> you know, it just wasn't like how it probably came across. Yes. And everyone was just living their own lives, rushing from one studio to one gig somewhere else and then back to another studio and another radio session and just everyone running about. <laughs> we weren't all just sitting around kind of holding hands, like, <laughs> you know, smoking weed together. It just it wasn't really like that. I mean, I, I guess it would be nice if it was, but... Uh, yes, <laughs> I know. But, I mean, when, when you look back at your the, the catalogue from Garlands to the Milk and Kisses, which, are the el- which is the album that you really... Like think, wow, that was perfect, and the one that is like, oh, that was a bit tricky. <laughs> um, well, certainly, I, I you know, listen, I heard in Las Vegas was the most successful of, of all of those records, and co- co- commercially it was. But um, regardless of all that, I think it is probably the most the the, the one I've, I feel you know most of a connection with, and um, I can't really find a fault in it. It's record that you can put on start to finish and not grimace yeah. um, I, I love Bluebell Knoll I love Heaven Las Vegas I really love Four Cow the Cafe I think it's an amazing record and, and I think people will probably realise that maybe many years in the future um, it was such a departure from, from, from what we'd done before and the fact that it wasn't on 4AD and the fact that we'd sort of you know, jumped ship and we were on the other side 
right. with the enemy on a major label. I think people were <laughs> sort of like, oh, no, that can't be any good. But but, but I think in time, people will realise what, what yes. a great album Four Can the Cafe is, because I think it's it's beautiful. Yes. Um, Milk and Kisses, I think, is like kind of almost almost okay, but doesn't quite work for me uh, on a sonic level. I think it sounds like it's sort of mixed with a pillow over over the speakers. It just doesn't sound right. It's too muffled. Yes. And I, I don't know why, why that is. Um, so really, all the records that I was involved with... I know Treasure, I was like... I, I think it's a weird-sounding record, and I know that's a lot of people's favourite. And that was my favourite, and he broke my heart. Anyway, that's the fun fifth and final part of the interview with Simon Raymond. Thank you ever so much for giving me that time. I so appreciate it because obviously the Copto Twins huge uh, um, sort of soundtrack to most of our lives during the 80s and probably into the 90s but uh, yes, the first time we heard them it was a JFK moment. Anyway um, if you would like to contact me for any reason, hopefully nice um, you can via Facebook, Twitter just go to at C86show and I'll be there. But uh, yes, this has been David Eastall. Uh, thank you ever so much for listening obviously next week there'll be another guest and another quality show but i'll leave you with another uh, track from an early album this is from head over heels from uh, 1983 this is music and drums have a great week <laughs>